As we prepare to start our study tonight, there are handouts on the back table there if you didn't happen to get one yet. We're actually starting tonight in just a second on page 63 of the handout. It's that last little section, uh, or maybe the two of the last little sections back there as we, as we continue our study of Revelation. In just a moment, we're going to start in chapter 21, verse 9, uh, with the New Jerusalem. Uh, and I just wanted to touch on this idea one last time quickly. Maybe I should leave well enough alone, but I'm going to go ahead and, and uh, uh, mention it one more time because this is what we've been looking at um, uh, in, the, in the first eight verses of chapter 21 with the new heaven and new earth. And uh, we're presenting a view of Revelation, especially chapters 21 and 22, that are probably somewhat different than, uh, than have been heard or, uh, or taught at different times. We have been trying, for those of you who are maybe here for the first time tonight or visiting with us, we've been trying to look at the book of Revelation from a very consistent point of view as a work written by the Apostle John from the Holy Spirit to uh, the churches in Asia Minor to speak specifically about uh, the onset of persecution that is about to come their way and give them hope and assurance of victory as the Roman Empire will persecute uh, the church uh, for her failure to worship the emperor of Rome and for a variety of other things that uh, we've been talking about for quite some time. And we come to the end of this after Rome has, has been judged and kind of the dust has settled And we begin to read in chapter 21 about this new heaven and new earth. And I just wanted to touch truly as lightly and quickly as I can. But we mentioned last week that there are many passages in the New Testament that speak about the end of time and speak of it in literal terms, not in poetic terms, not in images, not in apocalyptic images like we're seeing in the book of Revelation, but tell us specifically what will happen when Jesus returns. One of them we pointed out is in Second Peter chapter 3, where Peter talks about the dissolution or the destruction of the present world order and then the creation by God of new heavens and earth. Other passages that we've looked at speak about the return of Jesus, the resurrection of the dead, the judgment, heaven and hell, all of these things that are spoken of in a very straightforward manner, sometimes in the Gospels, but especially in the letters, and speaking about things that will happen in the future and are future to us, and that they will actually happen. the, the present world order, Peter says very clearly, will be dissolved with fervent earth. There will be the creation of new heavens and earth in which righteousness dwells. And we're to look forward to that and live holy in the meantime. But then we noticed how this, the language that is associated with the destruction of the world, the actual destruction of the world, and the creation of new heavens and new earth is used by the prophets to speak about other types of destructions. And we're not going to go back and read them, but in Isaiah, who prophesies around 720, in Isaiah 34 and in Isaiah 13, we find images that sound like right out of here. The stars falling from the sky, constellations falling out of the sky, the sun refusing to shine, uh, the rivers of Edom burning with sulfur forever and ever and ever and ever. Uh, And what we're reading about 
is specifically the fall of these empires or nations. We're not reading about the end of time, but end time language is used by the prophet Isaiah to talk about the end of these, uh, of these nations. In other words, the world of Babylon will come to an end. The oppressive power that has kept God's people in exile, their world will come to an end. God will take care of them. And, and that end of their empire is described in this figurative language that's drawn from the end of time. Well, the same thing is true when talking about God's people and the blessings that they are going to enjoy after the fall of evil. After the fall of Babylon, when the Babylonian world comes to an end, the future of Israel is described as a new heaven and new earth. In Isaiah 60, Isaiah 65, Ezekiel uh, has a little different imagery, but Isaiah particularly uses the term a new heaven and new earth. Uh, he talks about a time where the sun won't, they won't need the sun or the moon. Uh, he uses a lot of descriptive terms that we're going to read in Revelation 21 and 22. But the point is that the language of the, of the future, of a new heaven and new earth, is found in the prophets to speak about Israel's new world, Israel's new environment, once her oppressor and persecutor is done with. So we have the end of the world of Babylon, and we have a new heaven and new earth for Israel. Not literally, but in describing Israel's return to Jerusalem and her covenant renewal with God. What we've been... uh, Somebody pointed out to me, I think it was Cassidy and Emmett and I were talking last week after class. Uh, There's a couple of other times where this kind of end-time language is used. Uh, Jesus in Matthew 24... Uh, uses similar language to talk about the fall of Jerusalem. In Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, do you remember he quotes Joel 2 about the moon turning to blood and so on and so forth and says that that has just happened? Well, how has the moon turned to blood and all these, all these cosmic signs just happened in Acts 2? Peter is talking about the coming of the new age in Christ and the end of the old age of the law. And he uses this kind of language. So we have, we have this kind of language also applied uh, in the Gospels. Uh, the point we've been trying to make the last couple of weeks is this is the same kind of language that's used in the book of Revelation to talk about the end of the Roman world. The bowls of wrath have been poured out on, on the Roman world. We're told in chapter 20 that earth and sky have fled, that the world is gone, the oppressor is gone. And then what do we read about in chapter, uh, in Revelation chapter 21, 1 through 8? We read about a new heaven and new earth. And the point that uh, I was trying to draw last week is that we are not reading here about the end of time. We're reading about the whole new world that the church now enjoys because her enemy has been destroyed. So we have new heavens and new earth. The church has an entirely new situation uh, or environment now that her enemy has been taken away. Um, one day, those th- some of these things that we're reading about as symbols will literally occur at the return of Jesus. But in Revelation 21, we have been reading about a new, a, a new environment for the church 
after her oppressor, her persecutor, has been destroyed and that world has been done away with. So in other words, the the language is being used figuratively to talk about the destruction of a power that persecutes God's people and the new world in which God's people find themselves after that oppressor is taken out of the way. We then come, and where we start tonight, page 63 of your notes, in chapter 21, verse 9, to the final vision of the book. There are four visions in the book of Revelation. Uh, The first one is the vision of the Son of Man that begins halfway through chapter 1 and goes through chapter 3 with the seven letters. The second vision starts in chapter 4 and goes all the way, it starts at the throne of God, goes all the way to chapter 16 where finally the trumpets and bowls have now been poured out. And then the third vision is the vision of Babylon, um, the city of Babylon and the great prostitute and the destruction of those powers and the beast. And then finally, this final vision is of the new Jerusalem. Typically, when we come to chapter 21, verse 9, um, we have, uh, it's often, these uh, words and this description is often associated with descriptions of heaven. That at this point, we've kind of left the story of Revelation behind, and now we're, we're, being, we're, we're being given a description specifically of heaven itself. I'd like to give you an alternative uh, view of that tonight, as we've kind of been leading toward, and uh, kind of uh, talked a little bit about this last week. And, and remind us that we're still in the world of this vision. We're still in the book of Revelation, written to the churches in Asia about their particular issue. And as we begin uh, reading through this passage tonight, I think what, we're, what we will, uh, what I think you, hopefully, you, hopefully you'll see, or at least see, and then you can decide if you agree, but that, you, that we can see... Um, that, that rather than talking about the end of time here, what is being described is really God in fellowship with his people, the church. That the new Jerusalem, let me just put it this way, let me just state it straight out and then we'll work into it. Uh, and for those who just came in, so, oh, Connie, thank you. Giving them the, uh, that the new Jerusalem is not a place, uh, it is not something in the future, but that the New Jerusalem is an image describing the church, the people of God, in fellowship with God, and in uh, enjoying the beauty of their intimate relationship with God. That this is a description of the triumphant church, the glorious church, not in, a, not in some sort of outside-of-time thing that's going to come at the end, which, of course, is also true, but rather it's describing the church here, the church now. Who, who are we? After the battle is over, after we hear about the great victory, we have this final vision. And hang in there with me, and, and let me, you can tell me at the end of this uh, what you think. But um, let's kind of just start unfolding it a little piece at a time. In chapter 21, verses 9 uh, through Let's see, 9 and 10, just starting there. 
Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Let me read verse 11. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. First of all, verse 9 reminds us we're still in this world of vision. This is the angel from back earlier in the book who was part of the pouring out of the seven bowls of wrath. So we're still, we're still in the midst of this realm of apocalyptic visions. And so these words are poetic. They're prophetic and they're poetic and they're, they're symbols and images as the whole book has been. But the angel says to John, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. When we think and read in the New Testament about the bride or the wife of the Lamb, the Lamb being a reference to Christ, what are we, what are we being, what are we, what is, what is he talking about here? Who is the bride? What's the bride, the wife of the Lamb? The church. The church is the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So the angel says, I'm going to show you the bride. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem. So the angel says, I'm going to show you the bride, but then the angel shows him the holy city. The conclusion I would draw at this point is that the bride and the holy city are speaking about the same spiritual truth or reality. That as we read here about the holy city, Jerusalem we're reading a description, an image of God's people, uh, of the church, of God's people. And um, this, this church is coming down out of heaven from God. It has the glory of God. Its radiance is like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. God is, is described in that same term back in chapter 4 on the throne as a jasper, the kind of the brilliance of a jasper stone. But just here is John is shown this city from this great high mountain. Uh, for those who are looking for parallels in Ezekiel chapter 40, it's the same thing that happens to Ezekiel. He's taken to a great high mountain, and then he's shown that which he's told is like a city, and it's Jerusalem as an image of, again, God in, um, in fellowship with his people. And in the opening here of this particular vision, John is invited to see the bride, and he has shown the city. And so, as we read about this, if you, if you accept that the bride and the city are speaking of the same thing, and that the bride is the clue to us that this is talking about the people of God, then as we read about the holy city, we're not reading about a place or a location. If, if the city is the bride then the city is, is the people of God. Not a place, not a location, not something, not something to be located on a map, but it is someone, it is, it is the people of God living uh, in relationship with Him and living in His glory. And as we read through the description uh, of this city, 
I think you'll see that everything that is said about the city points to that identification between the city and the people of God. Take a look at verses 11 to 14. We've read of verse 11 that the city has the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, on the west three gates, and the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So, how is the city described? What are some things that were told in, at the, in these verses about the city? If we think of the city as an image, how is this image being described? Pardon? It has the glory of God. And then what, what, how else is the city described? Okay. And I'm going to keep that with, a, with a, the glory, the radiance, and so forth. Okay, it's got a great high wall. Twelve gates. Twelve foundations. Now, uh, any significance to the number twelve throughout the entire book of Revelation? The number twelve, and, and not just not just in imagery, but throughout the Bible, the number of twelve the number twelve is associated with the people of God. And here it's done very specifically. What are, what are on the, the twelve gates? The sons of Israel. What are on the twelve foundation stones? The apostles. The foundation of this city is the, uh, 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 are the apostles. Think to Ephesians 2, 20 through 22, and Paul talks about the church being built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. We have, like we have so often in Revelation, the bringing together of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, so that we have the twelve sons of the tribe of Israel, and we have the twelve apostles as a way of saying this is God's people. This is God's people of all time. This is God's covenant people. Uh, all those who have come to God uh, in faith. And uh, this, this, this people is like a city filled and reflecting uh, the radiance of the glories of God. And so the, the imagery here, all of this imagery points to the city being the people. Uh, and, and this is just really, I think, key. If um, Let me just ask... I'm not asking if you agree. I'm asking, do you understand, does that make sense? I'm, and not, not even that. Okay, thank you. I've, I've got, this is the, the most head shaking I've ever had. Thank you very much. Okay, appreciate that. Uh, I, I'll just, I mean, as clearly as I can say, what we're trying to say is the city is the people. The city is the church. It is an image, yes, it's an image that's going to be described, but what it's describing is the church, and especially the church, 
in her relationship with God. Um, there's a lot of parallels to this. Uh, Ezekiel 48, uh, 48, 31 to 35. Guess what? In Ezekiel's vision of the city of God, there's 12 gates. Um, and uh, you have the same kind of imagery that you, that you find here as he's talking about Israel as this great city of God. But again, uh, moving on into verses 15 to 17. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement, in case you were wondering. What does it mean to measure something? Ezekiel measures like crazy. In Ezekiel 40 to 48, he measures every little nook and cranny in this vision of his. To measure something means to mark out something as belonging to God, marking it out as holy. We have the two witnesses. We had this imagery earlier in the book of Revelation. When you go around the holy city measuring things, it's a way of saying God is protecting this. This belongs to God. This is holy. This is set apart from him. The church is holy. The church is set apart for God. And, and, and this measuring takes place essentially of this image. What do you notice about the dimensions of the city? Pardon? Multiples of 12. Now, you might, in your Bible, you might have that the dimensions are 12,000 stadia or furlongs or something of that nature. Does anybody else have a different number? Sure, I know you. somebody does if you have a different translations. Doesn't say doesn't say 12,000. 1,400 miles? Okay, some Bibles are going to say 1,400 miles. Some Bibles say 1,500 miles. Anybody have another number? 2,200 kilometers. Whoa! Somebody's even gotten the metric thing going on here. All right, that's pretty good. Yeah, yeah 12,000 furlongs. So you can have stadia or furlongs. Now, what did... Have you ever measured anything in a stadia? No, me either. Okay, I have no idea, right? We have no idea what a stadia is. Why do you suppose some Bibles did this? Because we know what 1,500 miles look like, or 1,400 miles. We know that. Or those who know a little bit more about the metric system know what 2,200 kilometers look like. This is where we mentioned this much earlier in the book. That when, a, when you're in a form of literature like apocalyptic literature that uses numbers symbolically, you don't want to do the conversion of the number. Because 1500 has nothing to do with anything here. This isn't about, this isn't really so much about the distance, it's the number. The number 12,000, how do you. What's significant about the number 12,000? What's that? 12 times 1,000? 12 is the number of God's people. We've talked about 10 being a number for completion. 
And here we have 10 cubed, or 10 times 10 times 10 times 12, to get us to 12,000. Earlier in the book, we had an image of the people of God as 144,000 people, 12,000 from each tribe, 12, again, the thousand being complete, a way of saying all the people of God. This city, its dimensions are 12,000 stadia. That 12,000, that number 12 is the number of God's people multiplied by a number of, the number of completion. Uh, which is telling us this is the people of God in their entirety. This is the, this is the covenant people of God. If you go literal, oh, let me, before we get there, the dimensions are 12,000 by 12,000 by 12,000. Did you notice that? It's not just long, it's not just length and width. It's also height. Okay, this is a city. Think about this. Now, if you do the translation into miles, you can begin to see this is kind of a weird-looking city. First of all, you can only breathe in about the, the bottom couple of floors of it because there's no, not enough oxygen. If this is a literal city, you're, gonna, you're not going to be able to go to the top, the top floor without life support. But uh, anyway, uh, that, of course, is not at all what the book is talking about here. It is 12,000 by 12,000 by 12,000. You've never seen a city like this before because this city is a cube. It's a perfect cube whose numbers just happen to be the number of God's people times the number for completion. And we mentioned this earlier, but what significant place in Scripture in the Old Testament is a perfect cube? The Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies is a perfect cube. These aren't its dimensions, but the Holy of Holies is a perfect cube. The Holy of Holies, the inner sanctuary of the temple where God dwells. We're reading about a city that has the same shape as the Holy of Holies. The size of it is gargantuan as a way of just pointing to its splendor and its majesty, not to get us thinking literally of, of, of those dimensions, but just a way of figuratively drawing attention to the, to the spectacular uh, image that John is beholding here. This is uh, the city itself. The city is described as this perfect cube, as a, 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 this gargantuan holy of holies which speaks about the majesty of God in his people. Um, I think we also have here the, the, uh, the walls. 144 cubits thick. 144. I mean, we, we've, we've had that one before, haven't we? It's 12 times 12. And when you start to look at this city, it's like everything about, everything about this says... This is the people of God. It's got the glory of God. It's the names of, the, of the, uh, the, the patriarchs, the names of the apostles, the number of God's people. The, everything here, the splendor and glory of God is reflected in it. And all of these things are essentially just reinforcing just the single truth of this image. Uh, that here is, here's, here is the people of God. Eldon? Translation of 16 down in the 
It's a pretty big city. Yeah, it would be. That has walls that are 1,500 miles tall and only 200 feet thick. I'm not, I'm not much in about uh, being a structural engineer, but I'm afraid that might, that might, kind of, that might be a little hard to maintain. And, and, of course, that's not the point, is it? It's like, it's, it's 144, it's the number. It's, it's not about, well, let me draw that one out and see how big that is. I mean, because when people go literal with this thing and set it down in Israel, it like goes across the Mediterranean Sea and it, and it goes up 1,500 miles in the sky. And, you know, it's just, that's missing the point here. This is about, uh, and, and it, just, it just keeps adding on here. The, uh, the imagery just keeps saying, here's the church in fellowship with God. Look as it goes on, verse 18. The wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fourth, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, I don't know, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, sorry, I don't, not a very good, uh, gem reader. Uh, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. We have jasper again. Jasper is the, the image or the stone used of God who sits on the throne. One who had the appearance of jasper back in Revelation chapter 4. So the city bears the same glory of her God. And, uh, and then you have pure gold, transparent glass streets. And then you have all of these uh, precious jewels decorating the walls and the foundations. And people have come up with all sorts of things. These could be a reference to the stones that were on the high priest's uh, ephod or whatever that he wore. But let me just ask you this. How many stones are there? How many precious stones are there? There's 12. There are 12. That's what's in, there are 12. Uh, there are 12 stones. There, of course there are. There are 12 stones, there are 144 cubic walls, there's 12 gates, 12 foundations, 12,000 stadia. Because of the significance of that number in describing the people of God. There is a reference, I'm not going to read it, but Isaiah 54:11. there is an Old Testament reference speaking of Israel's restoration as a city of jewels. Not quite as elaborate as this. But again, these are things that are just showing us with visuals... The glory, the splendor, the majesty, not of a, of a place, but of a people who are in fellowship with their God and reflect the glory of God. Each gate is a single pearl. People have tried to do things, you know, with the, the suffering, the little the stand and the oyster, and so you only come into the city through suffering. I think that people just have kind of fanciful things. Uh, if you think that that's fine, it's not fanciful, sorry, but... Uh, I think it's just it's just saying beauty, glory, majesty. These are um, these are not literal things, but they're just ways of talking about the beauty and the uh, the glory and the radiance of the city that's unlike anything else. These these aren't literal building materials, but are pointing to the precious value and the worth of God's people, because essentially what we're 
reading here and what the first century church was reading is that we are the city. This is us. This is who the church is. And look at verse 22. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring men into, and they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. God is present in the city. There's no need for a temple. Because the city itself is the Holy of Holies. The city itself is the the people of God. God is in the middle of it. There's no temple because God Himself is within the fellowship of His people. Think of the descriptions of the church as the temple of God in 1 Peter or in in Ephesians uh, chapter 2, where we are already described as the... or 1 Corinthians 3.16, where Paul talks about the church as the temple of the living God, that we together are the dwelling place of God uh, even now. And, um, And it's God's presence within the church that creates the temple. There's no need for the sun, for God is the light. Um, we read this image out of Isaiah 60. Oops, raced. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 19, and following last week is Israel enters her whole new world. There's no need for the sun. And notice this: the nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into the city. This is one of the things. I could just speak personally here for a minute. Over the years, I've kind of gone back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Well, not that many times, only three times. uh, Of whether John had shifted to the end of time or not. And what finally has kind of convinced me in my own thinking that he hasn't, and that he's still talking about the church end time, here are a couple of things. Uh, The first is that um, the nations will walk by the light of this city. In the end of time, there are no nations. The end of time, evil has been dealt with, and there is only light. But in the image of the city, there's darkness outside of the city, but people outside of the city can see the light of the city and can find direction by the light that emanates from the city. Isn't that not exactly what we're taught about the church in the New Testament, about being a city that's set on a hill. We are the light. The nations, and here the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. People can still enter this. People can humble themselves and come before God and and come in uh, to this city. Nothing impure can come in. This is the holy temple of God. In this image, God is in His holy temple, the church. And you can't come into the holy temple if you're unclean, if you do what's detestable or false. Only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. It's the, the, this is a description of the people of God who have been cleansed from their sin and who can come into the fellowship and presence of God because of that so that things that are unclean and evil have to stay outside uh, of, this, uh, of this fellowship. Verse, verse 
I'm gonna, let's read the next little section. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And we have the famous description here at the end of this vision part of it out of Ezekiel uh, and the, the city and the river part of it you can't help but think of the garden of Eden when you get back to the river the water of life and the, and the tree of life that's kind of its larger backdrop do you remember we read last time about in Ezekiel 47 we read about this little trickle of water coming out of the throne of God in the city and it just flows out. It goes all the way to the Dead Sea. It gets so big that you can't even, you can't cross it. The Dead Sea is teeming with life. There are trees on both sides of the river. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. And John sees something very similar to that right here. Notice that the, that the river flows from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And it flows through the middle of the street, and on either side is the tree of life. By the way, how many kinds of fruit does the tree of life have? Twelve. It has twelve kinds of fruit, bearing its fruit each month. And notice the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Where does the world go to find healing in life? They come to Christ. They come in to the church, into the temple of the living God. Into, they become part of the bride. That's where, that's where the world can find healing. And, and when you look at this image of the people of God in fellowship with Him, in this, this sort of this glorified state... It's, it's placed in the book of Revelation here to talk about all those that are still outside. We're going to get in just a minute. There's going to be an invitation to everybody who's outside the city to come in. This, this is, I don't think this is the end of time because people are going to be told they can still come in. They can still come in and drink this water if they want to. And it's an invitation to come to Christ. It's an invitation to come in to, into the church, into the, into the redeemed and to find salvation, to find healing, to find light, to find the glory of God. And uh, with, the, with the river of life uh, and, and the vision of God, some of these images work together just to speak of the end of the curse. The curse that comes in Genesis 3, that here we see the church lives outside of that curse. That curse has been dealt with by the blood of Christ so that we, we dwell with God, um, that we have that relationship with God now. Now, there's a sense in which all of these things, there's a, a sense in which all of this language will have its ultimate fulfillment in the future. All of these, all of these things point to an ultimate reality that cannot fully be known until the coming of Christ himself 
and the consummation of everything. But in the context here, I think that what, the, what we're being told is that this, this is essentially what's true about the church now. Paul says we already reign in the heavenly... We've already been raised up and seated with Christ and reign in the heavenly places now. Hebrews chapter 12, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God. We're, we've come to it. We, we, we're there. The church is the temple of God. The Holy Spirit of God today, the Holy Spirit of God dwells within you and I, the church. God dwells in and with His people. We are the cube, the perfect... We are the holy of holies where God dwells in the church, in, in, in His temple, the living temple of God. These are things that will one day be fully realized. It's kind of that, as you talk about the end times... You know, we live in this already, not yet kind of situation. Has the kingdom of God come? Well, absolutely the kingdom of God has come. But it hasn't yet come in its absolute fullness that it will one day come when Jesus returns. Um, And so we live in this world where these things are already true of the church spiritually, but they won't be fully realized until the return of Jesus himself when when these spiritual realities will be, will be fully known by God's people. Um, and at the end, of course, the Lord is present. The Lord is there. The Lord is with his people. And um, John, in this vision, is shown a spiritual reality that is true for the church and one day will be fully realized when Jesus returns. Um, we have uh, 45 seconds for all your questions. I know I pressed and didn't stop, but it, it's because sometimes we get halfway into something and it's so hard to start all over the next week and get back to the same place. I want to get all the way through. And uh, though obviously it's now 8 o'clock, I've taken up all your question time. Uh, come with your questions, with your comments, with uh, anything unclear. Uh, you probably had no idea that we were going to get this far tonight. Uh, I told Rob, we're having a contest to see who can get through our Bible class first, and I'm going to win, because uh, I think I may just have one more week here. Uh, we'll see. And, and read. Let me just give you, as you read, and you have the notes, when it talks about the coming of the Lord, When we finish up the book of Revelation and we read about the coming of the Lord and the church saying, come, Lord Jesus, we're typically going to the end of time. Try reading it a bit differently this time. Try reading it as it relates to what Jesus has promised to do in this book. Because if you go back to chapter 1, Jesus has been talking about coming and doing something. And uh, so kind of, let me give you that as kind of homework Questions or anything at all about the the holy city, the new Jerusalem, uh, well, please write them down if you think you might not remember them, and we'll uh, thank you for your patience tonight and listening so well, or at least making me think you were. That was pretty good. Let's uh, let's close with prayer. Father, tonight, uh, I just wish we had more time to just talk right now, Lord, and I know we don't, but um, because I'd really like for us to to be able to discuss this more and hear from one another. I just hope and pray, Father, first of all, that there's just clarity in what's been taught. And then then we can...
talk about agreeing or disagreeing or different points of view, but um, just thank you, Father, for everyone in this room, for everyone's attention and for being with us. Father, it's so exciting to me to read about who we are in Christ. And, and yes, it's is to realize now, because we're still living on this earth, but we know one day all of these things that we experience by faith and in a certain degree even now will one day fully be realized when all evil is, is taken away and we, we, we dwell in your presence forever. In the meantime, Father, may the images and the beautiful descriptions of Revelation continue to remind us of what we already enjoy in Christ, that we don't have to wait that we already are your people and your temple and your city where you live. And just one day, Father, that will even be more fully known to us. And we look forward to that day and hasten its coming. In the meantime, help us to heed the call of this book, as the original readers were called, Father, to be faithful witnesses to Jesus Christ. Help us to be faithful, to never compromise to hold on to our faith, to put our trust in you and in Jesus who does not fail and who always brings victory. We give you thanks in his precious name. Amen.